When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're into extra time. Kia ora and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, I'm Clay Wilson. The 2019 supercar season could hardly have started better for New Zealand driver and defending champion Scott McLaughlin. The 25-year-old has won seven of the first ten races of the season, with fellow Kiwi and teammate Fabian Coulthard winning one of the other three as their DJR Team Penske outfit has utterly dominated proceedings. But not everyone in supercars land is happy. And after McLaughlin's team and others were forced to make changes to the new Mustangs they're driving earlier this month, this week a second change has been announced in an apparent attempt to level the playing field. I caught up with New Zealand motorsport expert Bob McMurray, a man who has spent more than three decades with the McLaren Formula One team, to talk all things supercars, and started by asking him what exactly the latest changes were being enforced on the Mustang McLaughlin is behind the wheel of. I suppose before you talk about the changes, you really got, got to think what um, supercars is. And, and it's kind of between two stools as, as far as most racing series around the world is. It's not a one-make series specifically, like um, Formula 2 or Formula 3 or Castrol Toyota Racing Series. And it's not a uh, an all-out development series like the likes of sports cars or Formula 1. It's a series where the only rule is the rule that is made for parity between all the teams. Now that, you know, that could be debatable what parity actually is, but they're very hot on the parity thing. So the latest thing with the Ford centres around that, but then you have to go back a little bit further and look at uh, when the Commodores came in last year. Uh, Unfortunately, they, because Commodores are no longer made in Australia, they had to use the GM Opel Um, chassis and car and panels there was no effective panels from germany from opal that they could use so they were allowed to use carbon fiber panels well the ford team drew up in arms about that because that wasn't parity so they were allowed to use carbon fiber panels and then ford went to the mustang um which is okay call it a mustang if you like but it's not exactly a mustang as we see it on the road and the aerodynamics on that were um, all agreed, no problem, okay, we can do that. And then there was no parity because they considered they were, um, they had the weight in the wrong place, so the weight was changed. And now that parity rule has come in again to say that, well, you've got too, too good an aerodynamic package on this car, we've got to change that. And they're changing that by changing the front split or the rear wing and other bits and pieces. So I I don't like it, but the whole concept, the whole precept of supercars is this parity thing. And um, while that is in there as an overriding, overarching rule, this is the sort of thing you're going to get every time a new car is introduced. Um, It's going to be non-parity because it's going to be better than the one before. So it's going to be an ongoing boil that they're going to have to lance almost every every time something comes along. Yeah, it's, um, it's a hot topic, but it's one that's very difficult to 
to get around with the rule that that some um, supercars want to maintain. That's this parity thing. How much effect do you expect these latest changes, the aerodynamic changes, to have? And I guess universally, is it unusual for a series to make changes during the competition? Because I guess to some people from the outside, it might seem unusual that the rules are set at the start and now midway through the season, we're changing the rules specifically with relation to the cars. Is that unusual in itself? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I'll go back to NASCAR. Every time that they think there's, a, there's something gone wrong, they change it. the rule for the afternoon, let alone next week or the next race. Um, in Formula One, it's done as well, but there's a huge amount of consultation with the teams and it takes a lot longer to do, but it has been done. Um, in a single make formula, <clears throat> it's not obviously so so necessary because all the cars are exactly the same. Um, it is unusual to do it like they're doing it in supercars as a, uh, from, from another point, the formula's point of view, but it's not unusual for supercars simply because they want to have this parity thing. I don't think they'll get away with it again with Ford. They're not going to go back and say, hey, look, yes, we agreed it in the first place, and then we disagreed, and then we all agreed that what you've got now is good, and now we're disagreeing again. I don't think they'll get away with it for a third time. And do I think it's going to make any difference to the way Scott McLaughlin and Fabian Coulthard are driving that thing? I'm not so sure it will, because I think the car is inherently better than the Commodore as it stands at the moment. Um, and that's um, sort of amplified by the chief Commodore team, Triple Eight, struggling. So I, I'm not sure it'll make that much difference, but how much difference? I've no idea. I mean, obviously, other teams aren't necessarily happy about this, but the most talk has centred really around Red Bull, and the, a lot of the anti-Red Bull fans saying it's crap that they're just wielding their, their influence. What do you make of that line of thought? Do you think there's any element of that here? Well, I'm sure they are, because that's all they've got to wield at the moment. I think um, Roland Dane of Triple Eight is a very, very experienced um, uh, manipulator, politician, race boss. He knows every trick there is. Uh, so he's obviously going to be lobbying for the fact that the cars are not equal. Uh, I mean, what he says and what he said in the past is, is, is really quite good in that they want the formula, the if I can call it that, they want the series or the cars to look relatively like or as close to possible um, as road cars, as things you can go by. They don't want to get into all the flappy wings and the, you know, all the other bits and pieces when people develop on a weekend and stick it on the car. So I can understand that because at the moment supercars is, I believe, on a bit of a, a high. It's a good formula. It is close racing. We saw that last year. This year, the, the racing has not been close between the makes. I think what people have got to accept is this whole parody thing and that it is different to any, almost any other formula that I can think of um, that, where they insist that all the cars should be as equal as possible. Uh, well, you might as well have all the cars with the same body on them and yeah. develop your own bodywork and just stick them all out as um, what they call them cookie-cutter cars and, uh, uh, and that would be at the end of it. So, yeah. It is a question of development against um, innovation, against parity, and uh, you'll never get all three things equal. I guess in terms of McLaughlin and his reaction and approach to this, he's taken quite sort of a, a bring-it-on type approach rather than complain. We've heard him say things like, you know, happy to shut the haters up and that it's going to feel better when they win. What have you made of the way that he's gone about these changes being enforced on them? 
Well, from a public face, um, I think he's he's done very well. I mean, he's he's basically said, as you say, he basically said, okay, fine, give us give us what you got, and we'll we'll see what we can do with it. So, um, I, I don't know if that's going to be the case. If suddenly the the um, Commodores are faster than the Mustangs, I don't know if they, he'll have the same attitude. But at, at the moment, you can't certainly can't criticise his attitude. But what else can he say? I mean, I've seen reports in the press that people are saying, oh. It's, this thing has just been brought in to stop the Kiwis winning because there's too many Kiwis winning too many races in supercars. Well, that's true. There are. But that's because, well, has anybody actually thought that they might be the best drivers yeah. as well as um, the best cars? Because if you get rid of the, the Mustang influence, then the, the next people up are, well, surprise, surprise, Kiwis in Shane Van Gisbergen and Andre Heingartner. Mm. So, you know... <laughs> I don't think they they can deliberately try and slow the Kiwis down. That would be too much, as much as Mark Scaife would like that to happen. Um, I don't think they can do that. Uh, I, I just think that they are simply good drivers, and I think Scott McLaughlin's attitude to it all is, is a good attitude, but, um, well, it comes under the heading he would say that, wouldn't it? Because what else can he say? Yeah, I think most people would agree he's handled it. Pretty well. I guess you touched on it a little bit there, but regardless of whether the Mustangs have an unfair advantage or not, and that debate will rage, what does McLaughlin's dominance reinforce about his skills and pace as a driver? Oh, it just it just shows you what a great driver he is. I mean, he's driving against, if you say, if you like, against Fabian. Um, Fabian's a very accomplished driver, and he's a very good driver. Uh, you know, he's won races, and... Uh, he is the internal competition, and uh, once again, supercars is a little bit different because in most formula, the the one person that you are um, in fiercest competition with is your teammate, because he's got the same equipment with you. Well, essentially, uh, there are lots of teammates all driving um, Mustangs, as there are lots of teammates to Shane Van Gisberg and driving Commodores, um, and they're the people you're trying to beat all the time. And, and Scott continually comes out head and shoulders above any of the other Mustang drivers. Like all race drivers, it is a huge amount of, um, of self-belief and a huge amount of self-confidence, and he has those in buckets and spades worth. Yeah, Scott certainly seems to have an air of inner confidence about him that perhaps wasn't quite fully there before, and you go back to that the end of that 2017 season and that heartbreaking final race where he lost the championship to then come back and get redemption last year and he seems to have almost gone a step further with that confidence this year have you seen that in him you know that he just really looks supremely confident in his talents now uh, yeah yeah it, there is a different attitude about him um, while I was in Melbourne we had a, quite a long chat with him in the back of his truck and, and there is um, I, I, I hesitate to say it really but it's almost like he went from a a kid that didn't didn't expect to be leading the championship into now somebody who feels it's his um, it's the right place to be, exactly. and he's very confident in being at the front of the of the the group and being in the lead of the championship, and he's very confident in his driving. Of course, he's dominating, and you touched on this earlier, but you've got Coulthard in second, Van Gisbergen right there as well, and some very encouraging stuff from Andre Heimgartner as well. I mean, how exciting is it for New Zealand motorsport fans to have three drivers right at the front and another one who's who's throwing himself in the mix every now and then as well in this championship? Well, I mean, it's fantastic. And I think it's wonderful every time I I, um, I hear Neil Crompton wind up Mark Scaife on the 
commentary by saying more Kiwis there and because I know it gets under his skin enormously. And all those guys are doing a fantastic job. The only person we have to wind up a little bit or has to be wound up a little bit is Richie Stanaway. But the, the signs are in the last couple of races, but he's he's getting con- some consistency and he seems to be getting a car that's working for him. So that little um, handful of drivers, those five drivers, I, I think are doing a fantastic job. But we got, you know, we, we have drivers all around the world at the moment that are really well, doing a bloody good job, especially last weekend. We had a couple of winners over the, over the weekend. Yeah, it's just the tip of the iceberg, really, isn't it? Because we do hear about the supercars because of the, I guess, the proximity bias. You know, it's just over the Tasman and obviously a race here in, in Auckland as well. But they're really just a, a few of a, of a bunch. So, I, I mean, really, what does that say about New Zealand drivers or New Zealand motorsport? Well, yeah, I mean, it says quite a lot, really, in that um, they are spread around the world. Um, we don't need to <laughs> to talk about how successful Scott Dixon is. Yeah. I mean, there, there has never been anybody as successful in the modern era of IndyCar racing than Scott. Just fantastic. Then we look in um, in Asia, and Nick Cassidy's doing an incredible job in Japan with the, um, the Super GT and the Super Formula. Uh, he won the Super Formula first race of the season in the new cars last weekend. Just a, okay, things might have fallen in his lap a little bit, but um, you know things only fall in your lap when you do the right things at the right time, and they did that, so he won that race. And Mitch Evans has finally cracked the uh, the ceiling on the, the Formula E yeah. series, and he's won a race uh, won a race there. And of course, brother Simon, who's you know he's a very accomplished driver in himself. He's won an, um, an I-Pace, Jaguar I-Pace race and was, I think, third last weekend. I mean, a lot of these people, um, if I, I, and I'm not claiming any great, um, any great reason for it, but a lot of these people, a lot of others around the world, um, you know, Hayden Padden uh, and people like that, the, the Bambas, they've all been through what is unique to New Zealand, and that's the um, Motorsport New Zealand Academy. The, um, the scholarship trust run an academy down in Dunedin every July, and all of these drivers, all of them, except Scott Dixon, it was too uh, uh, he, was he was already gone. flown before the thing was thought up, and Scott McLaughlin, who spent most of his time in Australia. But everybody else, all of those drivers, came through the academy. Um, so I'm not saying that is the reason, but I'm saying that New Zealand is, is unique in having something like that that sets people on the path. And there are many, many other drivers, male, female rallies and single-seaters and saloon car drivers that have come through that are on the threshold of doing things. And I look at the Bambas again and um, Chris Vanderdrift and, and people like that, all of whom are working their nuts off around the world and being very successful. Yeah, and I guess outside of Dixon and the supercars, which we hear a lot about and, and know a lot about, it's hard for people to understand that some of these series, you talk about the likes of Nick Cassidy and Mitch Evans in particular, in terms of motorsport, they're very significant series and to be achieving good results shows that you've really got something special and you've got a bit of talent about you to to be having success in those series. Yeah, sure. I mean, just picking on Nick, for instance, first of all, driving in the two top series in Japan is, is an amazing feat in itself. Um, secondly, driving the Super Formula, those cars are second only to Formula One in terms of speed and um, and set up and all the rest of it. And, and then leaping into a Lexus and, um, in that GT racing, they're very um, similar, should we say, to the German DTM racing as well. So 
top flight racing, absolutely. Mitch Evans is in um, a top flight Formula E thing. I, I, you know, Formula E is not my bag, frankly, but anybody who's successful in doing an international race series against, and you look at the drivers in Formula E, there's some very, very yeah, good drivers, okay? Formula E was called Formula Exit because you can get it, couldn't get into Formula One, but that's not really the point. They are an awful lot of good drivers in that in that series, and I see this week that um, Brendan Hartley has said that he would be happy to drive the Porsche um, in Formula E, which is what he's been testing recently. So, um, you know, Brendan Hartley might not be a Formula One driver anymore, but he's in great demand um, with his uh, Ferrari deal, with sports car people knocking on his door all over the place, and now Formula E as well. Um, it just shows the quality of driver that Brendan is uh, to, to still be in demand, effectively. Motorsport expert Bob McMurray there offering his thoughts on all the goings-on so far in the supercars season. Two of the biggest stories in New Zealand sport this week have been the fortunes of the Warriors and those of Kiwi basketballer Stephen Adams in the NBA. Both have had weeks where things haven't gone their way, with the Warriors narrowly going down to the formidable Storm after an impressive effort in Melbourne, and Adams and the OKC Thunder knocked out of the NBA playoffs in almost unbelievable fashion. I caught up with RNZ sports reporters Joe Porter and Ravinder Hoonia to discuss the two stories, with Joe kicking things off with his thoughts on the Warriors' Anzac Day defeat. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously very controversial. It would seem on closer inspection that the Warriors were pretty hard done by by a referee's call, which of course is spouted and reignited the fires surrounding anything to do with the storm and the refereeing controversies and uh, conspiracy theories involved around making sure the storm make the final to keep the uh, Melbourne market interested with of course the referees help along the way so yeah look a remarkable effort from the Warriors all things considered many teams at most sorry pundits had written them off before this match they hadn't gone well in Anzac Day clashes that uh, before and of course they were without some big names and and some f- sort of mystery surrounding their captain and talisman Roger Tuivasa-Shek getting into the match that they had to deal with. So a few distractions and of course yeah a pretty hard call to lose to lose a game on like that considering um they really should have deserved to win. So uh, yeah just hard luck for the Warriors and what was a great effort. You mentioned the controversy surrounding Tuivasa-Shek. There was a fair bit of mystery and still is a fair bit of mystery Mm. around what went on. Ravinda, can you maybe tell us a bit more about what exactly unfolded and what your take on the whole situation is? Well, earlier in the week, there were, of course, reports coming out that uh, Roger had a hamstring injury and was, you know, highly in doubt of playing this game. And uh, Cooney during the week said that he was good to go. I think he said that to Radio Sport that he was good to go. And then on the eve of the match, he was ruled out with what turned out to be a hamstring injury. But Cooney's quite adamant that they never knew that he wasn't able to play until the eve of the match and that up until the captain's run, um, he was um, fit and healthy. But the coincidence of the hamstring, you know, the rumour of the hamstring injury and then it in fact being the hamstring injury has put uh, Stephen Cooney's comments in, into doubt as to whether he knew much earlier about the issue. Yeah, certainly an, an interesting one and perhaps not the last we've heard of it, but um, perhaps the Warriors may be trying to get a little bit of a mental edge or something mm. of that uh, that description. Joe, you mentioned about the, the great effort of the Warriors, but I guess that was all in vain because they did lose the game and five losses now from seven starts this season. Should Warriors fans be worrying at this point in the season, do you think? 
Yes, very much so. I mean, they look they have the markings of a team that's going to finish 12th, 13th, 11th, 10th, something like that again this season. You know, they really don't look like they're going to be top eight contenders. Um, they've had some good performances, but they've been incredibly erratic. Uh, they've won some, some, you know, a couple of good wins, but some very, very poor, poor defeats as well. Uh, they haven't looked like they've really settled on their strongest lineup in terms of who's controlling them around the field. They don't have a lot of leaders. Adam Blair's not having a great season at all. Roger Tuivasa-Shek is trying his best, but he's, you know, trying to keep a sinking ship afloat above water on his own, essentially, I think. Um, and he's probably trying to lead too much and try and get that team to spark because, yeah, really, it doesn't look like they're going to be headed for the playoffs this year either, I don't think, which is disappointing, um, but not necessarily surprising. And just to add to that, you know, when I'm having these conversations with Stephen Kearney at the training sessions, you know, the questions are being put to him of how much of a struggle has it been to, you know, basically turn up each week with a different lineup or, you know, different players coming in and out due to to injuries, but of course Solomone Kata was out on a compassionate leave or some something of the sorts of the last game. But you know he says, "Oh, it all comes with it. It's all a part of being a coach and being a part of a team and bringing players in and out." But it is clearly affecting this side big time. Yeah, you do feel for him in one sense, but as he mentioned himself, it is part of the game and such a brutal sport. Um, moving in another direction now, looking at basketball, and there's been a lot of attention this week on. Uh, the NBA playoffs and the Kiwi involvement with Stephen Adams and his Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, they've obviously bowed out, and it was in fairly dramatic circumstances in the first-round playoff series against Portland. Uh, a crazy fifth game, Joe. It really unfolded in, in dramatic fashion. Um, what did you make of the way it all unfolded, and just especially the, the dramatic nature in which it finished? Yeah, I mean, crazy way to end the game. That's basketball. The NBA tends to throw up that kind of in, entertainment for you, and you can't really get much more dramatic than that. I mean, the only thing it could have been is Game 7 in the finals, really. So it's a tough way to go out, but they didn't deserve to win that series. They were poor throughout. Um, you know, the guys like Russell Westbrook went up to his standards. He showed again that in the playoffs he's not necessarily that effective. Steve Adams looked um, a little bit out of sorts, or perhaps they weren't using him enough, but he didn't really have an impact on the playoff series either. So, yeah, what a dramatic way to end, but certainly um, the Thunder will be asking a few questions of, of why they've been dumped out in the first round of the playoffs, considering the roster they have. Yeah, you mentioned the talk about Adams and we saw him sit for that whole fourth quarter in Game 5 and that's now leading to talk not just here but especially in America about Adams' role in that Thunder team and his future mm. with the team and I think he's two years into a, into a four-year contract extension worth uh, US $100 million so it's big money um, and I guess when you pay big money you're expected to do big things. Ravinda, what do you make of the talk and whether it's warranted and, and where you see perhaps Adams's future lying? Mm. Well, like you said, you know, they've got some of the highest paid players in their team and it's not being reflected on the court. And you'd have to think that the OKC will have to make some adjustments and one of those adjustments might be Adams if they're not happy with his performances. We know that he has played better in the past and he hasn't been up to scratch, but he hasn't been the only one. My thoughts on it is that he is taking um, a bullet for the team at the moment because he's not the only one that hasn't been um, at best um, it'd be a shame for him to come away from there I mean he's he not only brings I mean of course your performances has to be paramount as, as to your spot on a team but in terms of what he's done for that team on an international scale and you know a lot of people in New Zealand 
you know, gained interest just because of Stephen Adams being in that team and the international um, recognition that the team has received. Um, you know, Stephen Adams has brought a whole lot more than a lot of other players may have brought in terms of him in a simple Kiwi character. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is down to performance and it'll be very interesting to see where they go from here. You talk about that international influence. Staying on that, I guess the upside for Kiwi fans is that potentially maybe we might see Stephen Adams playing for the Tall Blacks, which of course he hasn't represented the New Zealand senior side yet. We've got a World Cup coming up, starts at the end of August. Joe, do you think this is good news for Kiwi fans in terms of Adams maybe turning out in the black singlet? Look, I mean, it gives him or New Zealand fans more of a chance potentially simply because they've been eliminated from the playoffs so early on and there's no conflict of schedules. Um, less likely to have the Thunder trying to wrap Stephen and, and Cottonwool in the postseason, etc., etc., etc. However, look, I, I mean, it's ultimately going to come down, and it probably always has, Stephen Adams, and whether or not he wants to play for New Zealand, whether or not he's moved on from the, the grudge that he holds with New Zealand basketball over the, the funding issues he had when he was a kid, etc., etc., that we sort of all heard about last year and um, look I haven't heard anything from his camp to suggest otherwise so I think it's probably still unlikely that we'll see Stephen Adams suiting up for the Tall Blacks at this World Championship Um, whether or not they make a big call and get rid of someone like Russell Westbrook and decide that you know it's no point hanging hanging a shirt on him anymore let's keep Paul George and get rid of rid of Westbrook Stephen Adams is one of the more reliable and durable centres in the NBA one of the more genuine big men um, I'm sure he'd find a good home somewhere else in the NBA. It's just whatever the OKC can do to try and make them genuine title contenders because they're not at the moment with Russell Westbrook, Paul George and Stephen Adams. Uh, it's not necessarily the end of the world for Stephen Adams if he does go. He might end up in a team that's more likely to win a championship. Uh, he might get more minutes. He might play a bigger role. So I, I don't think anyone back home should be too worried. And that they shouldn't also be assuming that Stephen Adams will be the full guy from OKC because they've got bigger problems all round. Mm. Looking glass half full, Ravinda, just to finish, if he did decide that he does want to come back and play, what difference or what does he add to (laughs) a New Zealand team at a World Cup? Well, the experience bar none. I mean, in terms of years, some of the other Tall Blacks, of course, have that on him, but in terms of the experience he can bring from the NBA and that competitiveness from the world's, you know, top elite competition, that's priceless. But again, it's a worry that he's never shown interest in wanting to do it and even borderline gets frustrated with people asking him the question. So what he could bring in terms of experience and playing against, you know, the best athletes in the world in the game would be amazing. But, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. And yeah, it would be huge for New Zealand basketball, let's be honest. Instead of us previewing and reviewing the qualifiers, you know, and the, and the early round robin games and we're progressing, we're not progressing, second or third on your bulletins and somewhere in the middle there on your web pages, if Stephen Adams was playing... You know, it'd be leading news, sports news bulletins before the World Champs started. That when the news itself was announced, it would be all over the front pages potentially of the paper. You know, Steve Adams is finally set to put on the black jersey, kind of a thing. Um, you know, the coverage would be through the roof by compare. So I imagine that, yeah, just in terms of marketing and what it would mean to New Zealand basketball. Well, all of a sudden, everyone's going to want to watch the Tall Blacks. Whereas there's probably sort of a vague interest to see how they go at the World Champs. But if they don't make it out of the knockout rounds, oh well, that's it. See you later. However, if Stephen Adams is there, it changes the game. And that's all we have for this week's edition of Extra Time. Remember, you can keep up with all the latest in sport by simply checking us out on the web at rnz.co.nz forward slash sport. And you can also give us a follow on Twitter through our handle at rnzsport. I'm Clay Wilson. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next week.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.